time for the Extra Innings Podcast, presented by the Seattle Times. Your host is Seattle Mariners beat writer Ryan Divish. This semi-weekly slash monthly slash whenever he gets around to it podcast talks about the Mariners, Major League Baseball, food, and whatever else Ryan and his guests decide to talk about. And now, here's your host, Ryan Divish. All right. The Extra Innings Podcast is back. This is the third episode from Spring Training 2020. I'm here at the Palatial reserve at arrowhead not the arrowhead at reserve i get that mixed up all the time it caused a problem when my parents were trying to find this the other day on skype um i am recording this on thursday evening about 11 o'clock i just got off the phone with larry we did an hour and 15 minutes our subjects included ichiro the coach and some of the stuff that larry wrote about in that column which was pretty great he was one of the first people to talk to Ichiro about the coaching situation, and I thought he did a great job. From there, we get into Larry's 10 observations from spring training, and these are observations that you know, will interest you. They're not just some random things, but you know, he addresses a lot of the talking points that people have been discussing about this spring training, um, and so those are pretty interesting. Then we finally get into the mailbag, um, and the subjects include... Uh, what. Uh, clubhouse morale uh, what the clubhouse is like um my favorite bars in tacoma which i named off pretty quickly uh, our favorite eating spots in tacoma an interesting question of what will struggle more the hitting or the pitching um and that that was kind of an interesting debate for me and larry and then finally we wrap it up with whether or not we think or whether how will the coronavirus affect opening day at, at T-Bowmore Park. And basically we get into whether or not they're going to play it there and what could happen from there. Obviously a serious subject, you know, and it's not an easy subject to discuss, but that's that's something we addressed. And, and so we kind of just get into our thoughts on whether or not we believe they're going to play it there. So it was a good, it was a good fun conversation. Kind of miss having Larry around. I don't miss the bananas that he left uh, that he still has here. Um, they're disgusting. I tweeted out a photo. They're just gross. So let's get to Larry and start the show. All right, let's welcome in Larry Stone. Uh, this time, a safe space away from me. He's not in my personal space of about... 17 inches from me trying to record this over a phone he is safely back in bellevue uh and you know what the palatial state here at the reserve at arrowhead i got it right um <laughs> just doesn't seem the same without you larry i know it's uh, i've had withdrawal pains but uh considering what's going on with the virus it's probably a good thing that we're not as close as <laughs> doing this thing as we were last week because uh, yeah. personal space is suddenly uh, quite important well, you know, I'm a healthy young man, so I'm not really too worried about it. But, you know, it is striking at people of a certain age, and you are of a certain age. Uh, yeah, don't remind me. <laughs> I just want to let you know, uh, and in case you were worried, uh, your bananas are still here. <laughs> They're still on the counter. Well, you did. I left them for you to eat. Why did you eat them? I don't eat bananas. I don't like fruit. <laughs> I don't like vegetables. <laughs> Yeah, I certainly don't like bananas that look just crusty and brown and look like a science experiment. Come on, that's that's when they're at their best. 
Uh, well, you can, I, somebody's going to say make banana bread because we get that suggestion every year. So, you know, you might consider that. Your mom's around. She likes to bake. Maybe she can make some banana bread. I think those bananas are past the point of banana bread. Um, <laughs> they're on banana mold. Also, banana bread is highly overrated. I don't think it's very good. It gives me bad heartburn. So there's no amount of butter that can make it taste decent. Well, you would not offend me if you if you discarded of, with those bananas. I'm going to see if I can make it till March 24th. <laughs> that right. was- just for the picture, right? Yeah, just I'm. Just, I mean, like I. Just I for was, the tweet. My plan was every day to take a picture, but it just got too much. Like you know, so you could just put them in a video, like the degradation of them. But no, nope, I, I just don't have that kind of willpower to do it every day. It's probably more powerful when you only show it once a week, and then you could see the cumulative uh, effect of a week of uh, banana rotting. So you are back home. Do you miss it here? I mean, it was 85 I, I, today. Yeah, I do miss it. The very first day I got home, there was a hailstorm and thunder and lightning, and uh, uh, it made me think, boy, it kind of would be nice to be back in the desert. But huh. uh, I guess I got I, I flew home before uh, just before <laughs> flying became much more problematic, so that was good. You still have to make it home. Uh, well, we'll see if I do that. I might yeah. take advantage of one of those cheap flights, just go to Hawaii from here, so you never know. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, uh, it's so nice here, 85. I mean, it really, Yeah. we haven't had that, you know, in past years where it's been cool early. We just haven't had that. It's kind of nice. Well, you do, you lose your um, your hour deadline break on this weekend because we spring forward. So Arizona doesn't change, so it, it you you've been an hour ahead but he won't be anymore let me tell you how much that confused my dad that was like a 20 minute conversation on that <laughs> i can imagine uh, i could just imagine uh, Did, was there yelling was there screaming? no there wasn't oh. yelling like the cooperstown trip but <laughs> i yelled at my parents tonight i said they're acting like children because they were they were just nipping at each other and i was just like i'm i didn't come over here to listen to this i did not and so, <laughs> well no comment. Uh, yeah, it's the, the joys of spring. Um, so you're back. Uh, you were here for how many days? Ten? Ten days, yeah. Did you get your Pete's Fish and Chips? No, you did not. No, I didn't. I'm a little bitter about that. Uh, I, I lost control. <laughs> because of a scheduling quirk, I had to turn my car in two days early. So I no longer had control of my car the last two days. And so I was at your your uh, mercy and, and there was no no pizza trip i mean you slip the... a 20 to me i would have went to pizza <laughs> well, well. and the logistics didn't work out well i had a uh, leo's hawaiian barbecue today i know i saw the picture i knew instantly once i saw the picture oh. of your uh, meal where it was and i was very very jealous i was physically uncomfortable for a while i ate so much did, did greg go with you no it was just uh, me and lauren from the news tribune so greg yeah. greg has his wife in town so uh. All right, so we're going to get this podcast started by shamelessly promoting Larry's column um, that ran a couple days ago on his, how many did you go? How many observations did you give us? I went 10. 10 went, observations yeah. from spring training. We're going to go one, one through them all, one at a time, and then we are going to, um, I have um, 
asked for some mailbag questions. We've already gotten a few. They're still coming in. Um, but let's just go through this now. This is a right kind of your always your last column of spring. A lot of times you'll write it from home, but it is your uh, your last column. You have a whole flight to ruminate, as you like to say on it, in a couple of days. Because you wrote... Well, you wrote about Ichiro before that. We had did we do the podcast before we wrote about Ichiro? No, no, we have not talked about that. So why don't you talk about that first before we get into it? Because you know, you got to sit down with the wise one and and talk to him about coaching. <laughs> yeah, I realized I lied though. I said I had a sit down with Ichiro. We actually stood. I had a I had a stand up with Ichiro because oh. we didn't. We he does not sit down. He doesn't do sitting. So. Uh, yeah, I think it was as far as I know, it was the first interview he did with the, the at least with the the American press. I, I, he's probably done some with the Japanese, but um, uh, he was very uh, very willing to do it, and we talked for about half an hour, and uh, he just talked talked about you know, what he likes about coaching and uh, how he's at peace with not playing anymore, and uh, a little bit about. Uh, uh, his philosophy of fungo and and things like that. Huh. I'm, Are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> okay. Uh, I am a little curious though. If the Mariners called up and said, "Look, we really need somebody to play right field for us tomorrow. We don't trust Jake Fraley. Mitch is hurt. Can't put Carlos Gonzalez out there." You think he would do it? I think he'd do it in, in a heartbeat. Okay, yeah. so he may be at peace, but he's let's not. Just yeah. Say, okay. <laughs> Well, he would he would his, he would say something like you know the, I, I owe so much to the Mariners I could not turn them down in their time of need or something like that, but uh, I think, and then you know it would happen it would be in another year before he got into Cooperstown because his Hall of Fame clock would would stop once again would not start uh, if that happened but uh, I think there's actually after watching him this spring I think there's actually more of a chance that they could use him out of the bullpen than in right field because oh, yeah. he, he throws pretty – he throws uh, really well. There was that one game where he uh, – uh, they did the he, situational game where service pitched in one game and each row pitched the other, and uh, he was throwing some heat up there and with some breaking pitches and uh, and all that. And he wasn't – he said he wasn't even trying – to do anything but let them put the ball in play, but I, uh, it sure looked like he was kind of competitive about getting outs in that one. So, uh, but no, he's he's done. He's not going to play this year. This is a fantasy. Uh, he said that the the game in Japan is when he announced his retirement went so perfectly that he was able to just put it all behind him at that point and never once thought about wishing he could play again. What he, he said, what he sometimes he'll watch a game and think. I would have done this this way. I would have done it differently. Here's how I would have done it. But never once did he says, as he said, I wish I was out there playing. So, uh, you know, if that that's pretty cool. What could you glean any indication about how long he wants to do this kind of coaching stuff? I mean, like how far he wants to go with it. Does he want to manage? Does he does he fancy himself a general manager someday? I mean, you know, he seems really into it when he's out there hitting fungos and and throwing BP mm-hmm. and stuff. But I mean, like. Could you could you tell how into this party is? Not not really. That uh, I didn't ask that specific question about whether he wanted to manage. You know, when the season starts, he's gonna 
he's going to tone it back quite a bit, just like last year. He'll be in uniform before games, but he's not going to go on, on the road with them. Uh, he can't be in uniform during games, I don't believe. Uh, he's going to do some minor league stuff. But he seems right now to be kind of at peace with that. Uh, you know, the uh, the World Baseball Classic is next year, and I was talking to one of the Japanese writers, and there's tremendous uh, interest already in whether he will manage the, the Japanese team. Uh, so that could, if he does that, that might be an indication that, uh, you know, maybe that's something he aspires to. Yeah, that, um, I, that would be interesting. Um, I don't know if he'd be a manager, though, right away. Do you think, I mean, if he'd be good at that, maybe as a coach right away? That's a lot of pressure. Yeah, uh, I could see him as a bench coach kind of thing yeah. first. And uh, I don't think he'd like the the daily uh, t- uh, interview sessions oh, with the yeah. media, you know, like uh, how's, uh, how's Billy's uh, hamstring, you know, that stuff that we ask, you know, constantly. I don't know what kind of patience he would have with that. Uh, but uh, I strategically and all that, I don't see any reason why he couldn't do it. I mean, maybe it's different in Japan. Maybe he manages in Japan where you don't have to. I don't think they talk to the media before the game every day. I think they only talk afterwards. Um, so maybe that would be different, too, as well. Yeah, uh, although he just seems really comfortable over here now, the life that he has here of relative uh, privacy compared to what it was like in Japan. I think he uh, covets that, which is why he spent so much time here. Oh, when your son breaks into the newspaper writing business, Larry Jordan will cover Ichiro, the manager of the Mariners, in like 10 years. <laughs> when when you're retired and living in Boca or Phoenix and I'm back bartending you're... in Montana. <laughs> <laughs> will there be a newspaper in, yeah, uh, yeah. This, at that time? I, uh, I'm going to say yes. So that would be cool. That would be, uh, 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 yeah, sure, why not? All right, let's get to your 10 things. Uh, do you want to go in like reverse order, 10 to 1 or 1 to 10? Let's go 1 to 10 because some of them kind of build on each other, so it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't work if we went backwards, I think. Okay, uh, number 1. Outfielders Jared Kelnick and Julio Rodriguez are the real deal. Go, Larry. <laughs> well, I mean, it was hard to be in camp and not – be struck most by those two guys i think they just had we've talked we've talked about it uh, ad nauseum but they just have that extra something and i think the more you saw them uh you know julio wasn't hitting when i was there at all in, in the games he was hitting fine in batting practice um but um i'm not going to read anything into seven or eight spring training at that uh, kelnick what was hitting. Kelnick looks like he's ready right now. He really does, which uh, I won't get ahead of myself. That's number two. But um, those two just, uh, you could see what, what the hype is about. And uh, I think that's probably the best, one of the best signs uh, for the future of this team. Wouldn't you not agree? Yeah. I mean, like today we were sitting there and the game is boring and. I'm like looking at the players, and I'm just like, well, Kelnick and Julio aren't, and this is boring. Like, <laughs> you know, like put somebody out. Like, look, Sam Haggerty's a nice guy and all, but I'm not really interested in seeing Sam Haggerty. I'm gonna, you know, I, I'd rather see or Alan Hansen or whoever. I'd rather see Julio and Kelnick. So, um, yeah, it it everything. 
there is a charisma of the around those two and i mean i was there you know i wrote extensively about jared kelnick's first home run and that that interview with him was it was pretty memorable i mean like when he just walks up and he says uh crushed it huh i was just like <laughs> this kid i mean like greg johnson goes this kid could be real fun or he could be real crazy in a couple of years yeah well both both of them have you know just really quiet confidence and ambition they they both want to be the best player in baseball yeah. and think it's a realistic possibility so for the Mariners to have two of those kind of guys you know I, that's pretty exciting it is and and I know we mentioned it a little bit on the last one but I mean you you were up close and I know it's just batting practice but again in batting practice, to do the things they do in batting practice when the ball's not traveling very far and to hit it as hard as they do and the sound that it makes coming off their bat. And, like, Kelnick is so compact in his swing. It's so quiet. You know, there's not much movement. And it's it looks like, you know, like, I wouldn't say the Tom Amansky manual, but it looks like everything you'd want to teach a kid how to hit, this kid has been taught how to hit, like getting your hands in the right position. And he just unleashes on those balls. It is pretty amazing. Yeah, and and Julio is just a big guy with raw power. And the bat uh, speed that they both have, like Julio's bat speed for that big, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> I guess we, we don't want to overhype them because there's going to be growing pains and all that. Uh I mean, you look at even Mike Trout when he first came up. Yeah, uh, didn't hit much till his second year. I mean, you know, he was his the year he broke into the majors. I think he hit around two two twenty or something for maybe one hundred and fifty at bat. So, uh, you know, there's bound to be growing pains and, and all that. But I think people should stick with these guys. Uh, I just don't see the the Jeff Clement. Uh, Mike Zunino, Dustin Ackley, uh, disappointment. I, you know, uh, it could happen, but they just they just look different than those guys did. Well, when you saw those guys, one, they were older when the Mariners had them, and there were obvious flaws already as older players. I mean, like with Ackley, there was parts of the plate he didn't cover very well, and nobody knew about the power, and then there were health issues. And then with Mike, it was always the, the swing and miss issues and, and kind of being rushed and the position he was playing. But – these two kids seem so much more polished already at eighteen or at nineteen and twenty years old than than those kids did. I, I honestly, so I've been covering this team since two thousand six. Started helping out in two thousand six. I these two are the most talented prospects I've seen, like in all around complete prospects I've seen since Adam Jones. Yeah, and that's a pretty good guy to be compared to. Well, I originally wrote and then I, I deleted it, but I said that they were the best-looking prospects I've seen since Ken Griffey Jr. and Alex Rodriguez. And then I decided I, I, I wasn't ready to throw that comparison out there. But um, I think in pure talent and potential, uh, I think it's accurate. Uh, I'm not saying – believe me, I'm not saying they're going to be the next – uh, Ken Griffey Jr. or A-Rod. But the Mariners haven't had anyone with that kind of potential since then. No, and it, that's definitely fair to say. Like, I, I think anybody that's been around long enough would say the same thing, that the Mariners, and, and maybe uh, it, it's not that 
these kids are super talented. I don't know that they're Griffey and A-Rod level, but they're super, super talented. And the Mariners, uh, by comparison, just have not put out this kind of talent. They have not. When you draft as poorly as they have and you've had as many misses as they have had on the in the draft and even on some of the um, uh, international signing misses, I mean, that's, that's when you, you run into droughts like this as well. And what's amazing is that they got Jared Kelnick in a trade. I mean, how often do you pick up a 19-year-old kid with this kind of ability in a trade? And not only that, but you gave up a guy you were, you know, going to be desperate to get rid of because his contract was going to be uh, so onerous. And uh, you know, I know Joe. After I left, uh, Joel Sherman of the New York Post showed up to write the. Uh, Jared Kelnick is going to is going to haunt the Mets column, and uh, that storyline is really gaining steam as Kelnick is starting to be a top ten prospect in the prospect rankings. So, uh, you know, to 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 have picked up a guy that we're talking about in this glowing terms in a trade is really amazing. Uh, all right, number two. That said, I would be shocked if Kelnick makes the Kelnick makes the opening day roster. Well, I wrote that on the day that you, the home run you were just talking about. Uh, he, he he homered. He also singled. He went two for two, and his average was three fifty seven. And on talk radio, uh, they were already saying, "Is he going to make the opening day roster?" He just might. He should, and all that. But uh, who were these nincompoops saying that kind of stuff? <laughs> I don't remember, but. Uh, one thing I pointed out was that 357 sounds great. It was five. That, that's five for 14. So that 357 was built on 14 spring training at bats. Most of them when he's coming in the game in the seventh inning to face a guy from Double A. So you know you can't read too much into that. And this is a guy who's played 21 games above Class A. Uh, you know he made it to Double A at the end of last year, um, and plus all the. Uh, uh, roster, you know the 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 roster ramifications of uh, if they brought him up early and what it would mean for arbitration and all that. Uh, I just don't think they're going to do it. Uh, be it'd be stupid from a developmental standpoint and from a service time standpoint, from a business standpoint, a financial standpoint. It would be really dumb to do this uh, and let um, and let this sort of like uh, hype or the the just like the the joy of what you're seeing take over and and it also would go against everything that the Mariners have preached against you know the whole from Brian Kite the discipline is the shortcut thing the discipline move is to make sure that Kelnick goes to double a puts up good numbers moves to triple a by June and then you know what if he tears it up maybe you bring him up in September as a call-up and then let him touch it, and then you're looking at him as your 2021 uh, starting right or left fielder or center fielder or wherever you want to put him. And also, it does you no good in this like step-back thing that they're saying about and the part of the plan, the philosophy that they have of playing all these young kids. You've got to play... Um, You've got to play Jake Fraley to see what he has. You still have to – I mean, I don't know how much he's going to play, but you still have to give Braden Bishop some at-bats at the big league level. Maybe Jose Siri or all these guys that you have, play them and give them an opportunity to see what they are before you rush a kid up there and, and put him in a situation he's not ready for. 
Right, I agree 100%. And I mean, I think he will be in the major leagues at some point this year. And then uh, next year, you have him compete for a job in spring training or or give him a job like they did this year with Fraley. Uh, and, you know, Julio's not going to be far behind. Maybe he's a year younger. Uh, so maybe everything that we say about Kelnick, you can just have uh, Rodriguez do it the, the, the following year. But I think by the middle of next season, you, the, if everything goes well, you have those two already in your outfield, which which makes you wonder what happens with, uh, you know, Haniger and Fraley and, and those guys. You only got three outfield spots and you've got Kyle Lewis and, and Fraley and Kelnick and Rodriguez and Haniger and Malik Smith and all those guys. So, uh, you know, that, that gives them some, some trade fodder, but that's, that's a long, that's a long way off right now, but maybe not as long as we think it is. Okay. Observation number three. On the first day, pitchers threw live batting practice. Malik Smith stepped in against Logan Gilbert, who promptly buckled in with a nasty curve. I haven't seen enough pitching to face that yet, Smith announced this much snickering. I recall that there might have been an expletive tossed in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, that item is just about Logan Gilbert and my impressions of him as kind of the pitching version of Kelnick and Rodriguez. You know, the, the, they need a guy to step uh, one of their young pitchers to, to rise up and be the top of the rotation guy that they're going to need to you know, to complete this, this, uh, step back and step and to step forward, they, they, they're going to need some frontline pitching. And he's the first of the wave of pitching they have to, that's going to get that chance. And, uh, uh, I thought he was, I, I thought he's looked real good that he, he pitched in that one game. You wrote a real good story about how, uh, talking to him about, uh, last year when he, got shelled in his first start and how much more self-assured he was this year and he looked at and he looks like he's you know he's not too far off as well so just a real important guy for them i'll make this i'll make this observation he'll be in the rotation next year on opening day he'll be the four or the five and i think george kirby will be the next guy following in his steps where he moves up this year and then next year Starts the season at Double A AA or Triple A and ends up in the big league rotation. So by the end of the 2021, 2021. Now this is if they stay healthy. By the end of the 2021 season, you'll have Gilbert, George Kirby, Justin Dunn, and Justice Sheffield all in the starting rotation. And Marco because he and signed Marco. a long. I mean, maybe too. one of those guys like Kirby could be like they could piggyback him on the end there, or they could go six man because they'll still have Kikuchi. But they'll have to make a decision on Kikuchi that year too, whether they're going to exercise the option or not. So that'll be interesting to see. But I, I, I think Gilbert's been Gilbert was pretty fun to watch. I think his little twelve to he's got a twelve to six curveball that he throws at about seventy eight miles an hour off of ninety five, which is pretty funny to watch hitters just kind of get like, what the heck is that? He's got four <laughs> pitches, and I mean, I think as he gets a little more refined, he'll be pretty good. And you know, they 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 have few other young guys in that in, in that same class with Kirby that they're pretty excited about so uh, but, but you know pitching pitching from single a to the majors it's an even bigger step than it is for position guys so uh, you know don't get too excited yet but they are 
stockpiling some some arms that that give them a little bit of hope. If if that scenario works out the way you just laid it out, and uh, that's a lot of young pitching that uh, kind of uh, breaking in at the same time. So it, you know, if if they hit, that's a that's a young rotation that they you can grow with for quite a while. All right, let's move to number four on our countdown. My Casey Kasem was terrible. Number four, as we get to the pitching portion of our countdown. That's pretty good. What's our request and dedication? Uh, <laughs> I, I listened to that every Sunday night when I was in Haver, Montana. Casey's I used to here. listen to it, too. Yeah. Uh, so number four, most heartwarming moment of spring training occurred when Sam Carlson, once considered the best pitching prospect in the organization, until Tommy John elbow surgery. Damn, Long sentence there, there, Faulkner. <laughs> Threw live on the back. On the back I didn't know it was going to be read aloud on a <laughs> podcast. Or I you know. Oh, yeah, sure, you had to clean it up. Uh, we talked about the Sam Carlson thing already on the last podcast, uh, but that was really cool. I mean, it was one of my favorite moments this spring. Yeah, it was just sort of uh, this was a brief item, but uh, and I did write about it, and we talked about it, so we won't spend too much time on it, but just just seeing him make that comeback was something that stuck with me and uh, I couldn't write about my impressions of spring without talking about that moment. Number five, Mariners' level of relative success at the major league level will depend a great deal on the comebacks of pitcher Kendall Graveman and Taiwan Walker. Uh, Graveman has pitched twice through ni- – he hit 96 like three times the other day, although he said that's not good for him because he's a little too pumped up and doesn't have great command. Taiwan will pitch on Monday um, – Monday against the Brewers in Maryville at night. Uh, and that's going to be interesting going into Maryville at night. But um, Taiwan looked okay in that little sim game he threw the other day. Only I see one inning. I think we'll have a really good idea of Taiwan and where he's at, if he's going to be ready for opening day based on this, these next two outings. I mean, because, like, if he's really off or kind of rusty looking, they may start him on the IL and just slow play him and let Dunn um, start it. And then bring Taiwan along because they don't want to just throw him out there if he's he's not ready. But um, yeah, you saw Graveman, didn't you? See P- Graveman pitch? Once? I did. Yeah, he was impressive. Yeah, uh, nice guy. I, yeah, he. I, I talked to him a little bit a couple of times too. Yeah, he's a good, good, good guy to talk to. Very introspective. But I, I think it's just a little weird that here we are on on March fifth, and Taiwan Walker has not pitched in the game yeah. yet. You know. We're, we're here, oh, he's fine, he's fine, they have reasons for it, but uh, color me a little bit suspicious that that something must not be quite right. Why? Him not. Yeah, I wrote it the other day that there is some internal concern that he might not be ready to make that first start, uh, which would be, you know, five days into the season or whatever. Um, I mean, that that is one thing that saves him maybe or maybe allows them to be like this is that – he is the fifth starter, so it's pushed back, you know, a week later, or it's five days into the season. Um, but yeah, I mean, we'll know a lot more about Taiwan's yeah. readiness, I think, come Monday night when he faces the Brewers. I did th- did think it was uh, encouraging f- for him that he was hitting ninety four in that was it a B game or yeah, in- B- simulated game? B or- game? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if he's up to ninety four for a guy coming off. Uh, you know, missing two years, that that's that's a, a good sign. But uh, it sounds like Justin Dunn against the Angels, even though he hit uh, Mike Trout, and you wrote a good story about how hyped he was to face Mike Trout, but that sounded like 
it was a pretty good, uh, impressive outing for him from what I've, you know, what, what I read and heard. Yeah, he was. I thought. I think he just. He looks pretty good. I, I don't know that he's ever going to be the front of the rotation guy or front of the rotation guy, but I think he can be a solid number four or five starter. And you need guys like that. He he has four pitches, and he he's not afraid to throw any of them. I, I like him. I like his makeup. You know, and talking with him and stuff, he really gets it. So I mean, I I thought I love the line about. You know, I've faced Mike Trout thousands of times in every bullpen and mental <laughs> rap I've done. I'm like, oh, yeah, I was it when he was in the box then. <laughs> yeah, it's not quite the same. Yeah. Uh, but the, the, the main point of that I, uh, item number five was that, you know, the, this is 40% of the rotation to two guys that uh, haven't pitched, uh, didn't pitch last year, and in Walker's case, hasn't pitched in two years. So there's a lot of gambling that comes with that, that they're, that they're going to make it through healthy. And, you know, that would be great for them because it, maybe they can make themselves tradable. I mean, we just mapped out the future rotation and it doesn't contain Kendall Graveman or Taiwan Walker. No. So if they could make themselves uh, desirable by July 31st, um, and then you could give that spot to, you know, in the, the best case world, you, you could give it to uh, Gilbert. Uh, you know, or you know, done at some point, I'll be ready to break in as well. So, uh, it would be great for them if those two pitched well. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't anticipate Graveman being on the team if he pitches well, or Taiwan for that matter. If they pitch well, they'll move him. I, I honestly think so. I mean, they they could if they really wanted to bring Taiwan back, they could look at it again, but I think they'd move him if they're given the opportunity. Uh, yeah. number six. Yes. Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I mean, sometimes. You also you unearth something that you uh, that's unexpected in those kind of cases. You you know maybe Graveman turns out to be great and you want him to be part of the future yeah. or Taiwan or something. You know that's not unheard of. But well, neither is uh, very old. I don't believe. I know Taiwan no. is not. Taiwan is really young still, despite the fact that it seems like he's been around forever. Number six, speaking of comebacks, one of the most promising is that of left-handed pitcher Yusei Kikuchi. Kikuchi pitched today, three shutout innings. He had a couple walks early, but, man, in the last inning, he was pumping 96, and it looked easy. Like, you know, last year I thought when he would try to get it up to 94, 95, it looked like he was trying to get it up there. Today, when he was hitting 96, it looked like it was a pretty easy 96. So I think that's a pretty good sign for them. Yeah, I mean, whatever it was he did this offseason, the simplifying the mechanics, the working with driveline, uh, sticking to to one strategy rather than, like, changing every time he uh, gets – somebody gets a hit off of him. Uh, it seems to be working. And, I mean, what, what you just described is kind of what I saw when I was there, too, just easy heat that he was throwing that he just didn't deliver last year. So – uh, I mean, the Mariners signed him and gave him $58 million for a reason. He was a guy that was a, a big, you know, had great success in Japan. And, uh, you know, maybe a year late, it's he, he's ready to deliver on it. So, um, you know, that's what spring training is about. It's getting your hopes up on guys like you say, Kikuchi. And sometimes you get your heart broken when the season starts. But right now, he looks he looks like a pretty good comeback story. Uh, okay, number seven. 
One clear improvement of this year will be infield defense as Times reporter and best-looking sports reporter on the staff, Ryan Divish, has touched upon. <laughs> I may have ad-libbed in a few pieces. Oh, wait, there. that was a typo. I meant to write Bob Condotti. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you, you, the, the infield defense. Uh, well, not looks, that it could get any worse. <laughs> it could not get any worse with Tim Beckham and uh, Ryan Healy at third. And uh, uh, who? Who was playing for, oh, yeah, Jay Bruce, uh, Jay Bruce at first. Yeah, I mean, just think how many errors. Evan White, I don't know if he's going to hit at the major league level, but he's he's as good a first baseman as they've had defensively since John Olerud. And he's going to save a lot of errors. And, and, uh, and you know, that's something that, that's really important that's really not thought about much. But, you know, a good a guy at first who can – dig it out and uh, stop errant throws and all that. Uh, and I, I think White's going to hit, too. But um, yeah, I don't know if he'll get the power that they want right away, but I think he could be a, a nice doubles guy. I don't know. Yeah. Let me give yeah. the Lloyd. I think he could lead the league in doubles. <laughs> he said about <laughs> Justin Smoke that year. Listen, I think he could lead the league in doubles. <laughs> I, I was like, have you seen that guy run? <laughs> Yeah. Is he turning triples uh, into doubles or what? I think that was one of those where he was just trying to pump the guy up. Uh, he, he, I've heard him compared to like a Mark Grace uh, type of first baseman. One of my heroes. And I think that's that's a good comparison. I think you know you'd love to have a Mark Grace, but Mark Grace wasn't a guy who hit thirty homers, but he would get you close to one hundred and eighty hits every year in a lot of doubles and play great first base. Yeah, and you'll take that if you can get power from other places anyways. Exactly. Uh, yeah, and that was number eight. Will White hit? Will White hit in his first major league stint? Will Kyle Lewis? Uh, Long, Jake Fraley, as you pointed out, they're handing a ton of um, ton of jobs to these kids, and you said, I wouldn't be stunned if one of them ends up back in the minor leagues. Of the four, which one is it? Mm. Boy, I've, I was looking at the stats yesterday, and Lewis is hitting. <laughs> what's Lewis is hitting about one fifty this spring, or maybe yeah. even lower. Uh, but uh, I would probably guess Jake Fraley if I had to pick one of those four. Maybe maybe, uh, maybe Lewis behind. I don't think White's going anywhere, and I don't think Shed's going anywhere. But the other two. I think have the potential to maybe struggle a little at the big league level. I mean, Jake looked overwhelmed at times last year in the little bit of he was up there before he got injured. I thought he looked overwhelmed at the plate. But service and those guys seem to think it's because he was fatigued. He looks a lot bigger this year, muscular-wise. I mean, will he maintain? I don't know. And then, you know, if he has to play, you know, he's going to play every day. It's a grind, whatever. Um, yeah, I could see one of those two. Um Kyle's just got such raw power, though. If he when he hits it, it just goes. I mean, he, you know, I think he'll strike out a lot. I mean, he could be a guy that strikes out 175 times, 180 times this year. But he's also a guy that could get a get you 30 home runs with those 180 strikeouts. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think it's key for him to get off to a fast start, and so he doesn't start second guessing himself and all that. And he knows a little something about fast starts because. Uh, I mean, he got off to one of the fastest starts in big league history uh, with six homers in his first 10 games. Um, so I think uh, then he faltered a little bit. So I think if he can get off to a good start, 
I think he'll get maybe get his confidence back, and that'll that'll be good. All right, number nine. Speaking of Gordon, he'll be a fan, fascinating case study. Um, look, we, I talked to him that day. You weren't there that morning, were you? When we talked to him, yeah, no, it was. Uh, he showed up unexpectedly early. Oh yeah, <laughs> I was, yeah. That, that, I was going to get there at about eight that day, and then, then I get there at like seven forty-five. Or he got there and, and said he wanted to do it at seven forty-five, so I missed it. But fortunately, you were there. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean. I think it's obvious to anyone, and I mean, even if you weren't there to see it, I mean, he's not pleased. You're not going to be pleased going from a starter to a reserve when he feels like, you know, the guy behind him hasn't really done anything to unseat him, despite how, you know, how mediocre his numbers were and the fact that he's battled injuries. I mean, you know, you could argue that Gordon has done more to deserve the spot than Shed has, but the circumstances of the situation where they're at i get his discontent um but yeah i i haven't seen anything from him that says he's going to be a pain about stuff he's he's going about his business i i know he's asked on days he hasn't played in the a games he's hit in the inner squad games uh and and that kind of stuff so yeah and it's to his benefit to keep a good attitude and to perform because if you do want out, you've got to make yourself desirable to other teams, and you do that by being a good soldier and by performing well when you play. And you know he's he's he can play enough positions that there could be playing time for him. You know, as uh, he can back up at shortstop, he can he can obviously play second. He could play the outfield. Uh, I think he'll. I think he'll get enough at bats to show what he could do, and if one of those kids that we were just talking about is struggling, then uh, you know he may get more time than than they are hoping for at this point. All right, ten. It's time to name a camp sleeper. You're nominating twenty-four-year-old reliever Sam Delaplane, which is a bunch of crap considering that. Service named Sam Delaplane as a sleeper at the winter meetings or at the uh, pre-spring luncheon. <laughs> did he? I don't. I honestly yeah, don't I, remember that. Did he? I did. <laughs> uh, so obviously it was a brilliant choice because uh, uh, no, I mean I don't think he's going to make the team. You 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 had your twenty-six man roster uh, earlier this week and you didn't have him. Man, I don't even think you mentioned his name as a as a candidate, but I think we'll see him at some point this year. And uh, I mean, he he went up to, to to Arkansas last year, and he pitched 37 innings, and he gave up two earned runs, 0.49. He struck out 58 and he walked nine. I mean, those are the number those numbers make you sit up and take notice, even if they're in the minor league. To quote Felix Hernandez, that's pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, yeah, no, like he's been great this spring, actually. I mean, he had that little situation in Chicago. I think he walked the bases loaded or loaded the bases and managed to get out of it. I do think he'll get called up at some point. We can discuss this at some point, but the Mariners' bullpen has some some lack – it has some flexibility issues because Matt McGill and Dan Altavilla do not have options. And so if you take them off the 25-man roster, you have to DFA them. And they both, you know, they both think that those guys can be contributors if, if not for, you know, 
years to come but or as trade pieces so those guys don't have options sam tui by lala doesn't have options you're locked into carl edwards jr and yoshihisa hirano neither of whom have looked great this spring um and then you know so you have those and you have johan ramirez the rule five kid who they're going to keep because he's he's so talented it doesn't seem to matter that he can't really throw strikes or knows where the ball's going uh, at times, but you know he does have so much talent. And I think you have to keep it, uh, take a chance on him. So they don't have the flexibility that maybe they had a few years ago, where they could move guys up and down. And Delaplane gets his chance. I think Delaplane will go to Tacoma and start there, and and or he could go back to because he only made twenty five in Arkansas. But I think Tacoma would be the better starting place for him, and and maybe he does get a chance if somebody's injured or something like that. I do think. Uh, McGill and, and Tui Valala have not pitched in games yet, and we're starting to get a little tight to the season. I don't know that you take both of those guys and start them on the big league roster or on the opening day roster if you aren't certain that they can go at normal required usage. So maybe they they IL one of those guys to start with, but I still don't know that Delaplane would be that guy. One, because they may not want to be able to use the 40-man roster spot on him as well. Yeah, and I think we... What you just laid out right there is probably the number one reason why we both think they're going to lose 90-plus games, and you think they're going to lose 100-plus games. I've got them more like 96. but uh, Ever the optimist that you are. <laughs> yeah, I'm optimistically saying 95 or 96 losses. But the, the bullpen is just does just, just not shape up right now as being uh, anything but a problem. Okay. And, uh, that was, a good, that was a good 10 observations, Larry. I, I mean, I, I like that they had some good transitions. I, you know, I, <laughs> oh, thanks, Ryan. Uh, I appreciate that. Okay, uh, so let's get into the mailbag portion of the show. I don't have any good, like, entrance music or anything like that. Um, letters. Yeah. We get letters. <laughs> we get your letters every day. Okay. Don't ever do that again. <laughs> um... Let's get this real quick here. Um, how From Kent Nichols, how's the clubhouse morale? Seems like it may be another long campaign this year. Kent, the clubhouse morale is great right now because it is an end of the season. And I think, honestly, I mean, the clubhouse is so young, they don't know any different. They don't know what a long season is because most of them have never been up there. So they're all excited. And I think it'll stay that way because I think they understand the opportunity that's being given to them. It's something I'm writing about for a special section. But, you know, uh, I've seen nothing but that. And because the Mariners have kept these guys, this group of younger players together at AA and together even last year, there is a closeness to the group that, because they've been around each other and they've kind of played together for a while. You don't have kind of the surly veterans in the corners. There's no Sexons and all these grouch asses in the corner causing problems. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a great point. Um, this is a this is a great camp to be a young kid in because they're they're all young kids, and I think the Mariners uh, very pointedly kept. The, that group in together in double a and uh you know they, they're they're real tight they hang out together um and then there's a the, the younger group behind them kelnick and, and and rodriguez are inseparable so uh yeah i mean the morale is great they're all in a major league clubhouse a lot of them for the first time trying to make a team trying to make an impression uh the dissension when it comes 
in clubhouses, it usually comes over things like playing time and losing and, and, and that sort of thing. And that doesn't happen in spring training. Uh, okay. Uh, from Michael Cordova, favorite bar in Tacoma, Larry, you got, you got an answer? <laughs> I wonder, I think that's more directed to me. Yeah, I'll sit that one out. In order, in no particular, I'll give you five, Michael, uh, bars that I like in Tacoma. The West End Pub, which has been my original bar since I first moved out there. It's a great sports bar. They treat me well. Hank's Corner Tavern, or Corner Bar. It's in Stadium District. It's great. Underrated pizza. Uh, three, top of Tacoma, up on the, above the Tacoma Dome. When they give you nachos, it comes on a cookie sheet. That's how big mm-hmm. the nachos are, and they <laughs> bake them. It is amazing. Uh, four, the Red Hot it's uh it doesn't it's not a full bar and then it, it only has beer but it has gourmet hot dogs and five the eleven eleven bar best sandwiches in tacoma real quick like well i've been to the west end so i could vouch for that yeah. uh, i went there for uh to meet you a couple of times for my 30th been, birthday uh, is that what it was yeah no it was my 40th larry 40th okay <laughs> Favorite? And then there was there oh, was a, there was also a go, coming home party for one of your friends. Or something. Oh yeah, Dusty. I think it was my buddy Dusty. From yeah, from, had been in Japan. And you've been to E nine before, Engine House Number Nine, the fire yeah, house. But you yeah, did, you, we were. Oh, was that one you mentioned? Is that no, one you I didn't mention. But yeah, oh, that's okay. a good place. Yeah. All right. From, I took took my family. Oh yeah, from Casey Masterman, favorite place to eat in Arizona. I think we've covered this, but I just want to say that we went to Los Dos Molinos, and it was really good. And Larry, you just can't take it. All anywhere. right, we're out of time. We're out of time. <laughs> Larry, Larry had an issue trying to pour a, a pitcher of margaritas, and I understand it was the blended kind, which I believe is communism, anyways. Blended margaritas, but you know, anyways, he's pouring, and you know how the ice gets stuck. The ice got stuck, so he angled quick, and then all the ice came out at once. It was it's a it's a mistake that happens to people and Larry is not a probably a big Larry's not a big drinker so the, I mean I understand how it happened but did I video it yes did I mock him yes okay yeah I think that was the best thing that happened to you that night because you were so gleeful beyond uh, uh, what what that merited that uh, you know I was very happy for you that your night was made totally worth the the crushing heartburn that I have from all the margaritas <laughs> and Mexican food. And that place is great. I highly recommend it. So Los Dos Molinos, Richardson's, those are our two of our favorites, I think. Yeah. Uh, Leo's, you mentioned, for yeah. a lunch place. Uh, Heidi's Heidi's uh, Deli uh, for a lunch place. Yeah. Um, I, I second Los Dos Molinos. Really miss Don and Charlie's, which is closed now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, from... Tyler Staub, I've been a Mets fan for tw- or I am Mets. I've been an M's fan for over 20 years. Ever since the early aughts, it seems like the team, and especially the way it's been run, has become distanced from the fan base. So I asked the looming question: Does the Mems brass even care about team success as long as we show up and buy stuff? Uh, I'll start with this. I think that's one of the biggest misnomers ever: is that they don't care about winning. They do care about winning. You can make the argument they don't know how to win, and they're not very good at hiring people that know how to win or doing the things it takes to win. But I still think they care about winning. Um, they're just not very good at it. I guess that would be everybody I've ever dealt with. They they eat themselves up over the losses and they take the bad seasons and the fan complaints very hard. I, again, you, 
it comes down to this the people that make the decisions and there was a past ownership group who hired some people that made questionable decisions that's not knowing how to win that's not wanting to win that's not knowing how i think a lot of that reputation dates back to one howard lincoln interview i think it was with uh, me uh, no this one was with blaine newnham before even oh. you came around where he said something like uh our goal is to be competitive no, not necessarily. I can't remember how it was worded, but it, it came across as the goal wasn't to win the World Series, and uh, you know, I, I don't think that's what he meant, but that's how it was. That's how it was pers- widely perceived, and I think that's the notion kind of took hold that the Mariners were more interested in filling the seats and being pretty good than in competing. And I, I agree with you. I, th- I think the, the the fault was they didn't do it right. They, there were years where they had the highest payroll, you know, the 100 million payroll with 100 losses, where they were the first team to ever do that. Back when having a payroll at 100 million meant something, you know, now now it's more like uh, 150 if you're trying to win. But um, you know, they just they, they would go sign free agents. They just signed the wrong ones. And, you know, the Bedard trade was a trade to try to win it. It turned out to be disastrous and, and kept them from winning, but it was an aggressive win now trade. So, uh, and Carlos Silva, the, who they signed to four years, 48 million, it's the, the, that was another aggressive win now move. It's just they made bad moves. The one spring they signed Sexton and Beltray, that was aggressive. They, they got Cano, which was an aggressive win now move. So, you know, they've tried, they just they just haven't done it well. Yeah, and and Howard, uh, yeah, I I remember the Blaine thing, and I think it was something about providing a safe, enjoyable environment for fans to watch games as well as being competitive. I mean, that's what he got in trouble. I I know that Jerry Brewer and I both did interviews with him, and Howard made a similar comment, like, you know, his goal was to provide a safe and Mm -hmm. family-friendly environment to watch games and entertain fans and all this stuff. And and that should be a goal, don't get me wrong, but you always got to come out and say that, we want to provide all that, but our focus is still to win the World Series. But yeah, Howard, you know, he was a lawyer, and he'd get pissed in these interviews, and he'd go off the script a little bit from what I think he had planned to say, and, and sometimes it just didn't come out, I think, the way he wanted to, to sound. And I think, you know, yeah, like we talked about, they, they, have, they have tried to win. They just haven't done a very good job of it. And, and that's, you know, in talking with John Stanton, the new owner, he's made no bones about it. He said, you know, the World Series is their goal. And I do think that by doing this, what they're doing now, it does show that ultimately winning uh, something beyond just 80 games is a goal. Because, you know, if you just kept trying to patchwork it together over the years, you could probably still do that. But to really tear it all down and try and get better to the point where you can win 100 games or 95 games, you had to do something like this. And it's a tough sell because uh, to fans who have waited so long for a playoff berth to to hear that the way we're going to win is by being terrible for two years, you know, you really have to explain it and you really have to sell it and you have to make it work most of all. Because if this flops, then then I mean you're really uh, up against it. Because you've tried the rebuild, you can't really do that again. And 
you know, all you have, all you've done is lost three or four years. So there's a tremendous pressure on this thing to work. Yeah, it just, it, it'll be interesting to see if it all works out. But you, you're right. I, I, do you think, though, that, I do think that knowing that they were going to do this, the Mariners should have made some concessions to their fans, whether it's lowering some ticket prices. I know they do in the $5 tickets and stuff, but, you know, if they went around and just said, look, we're going to lower concessions by 20% this year, you know, it's 2020 and we're going to lose. It's 2020, it's 20 years or whatever since we've been to the playoffs and we're going to lower it 20% on all concession items. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's throwing a bone to a fan base that has been – unbelievably patient with some of your missteps and and mistakes yeah and also to uh you know ticket ticket prices too yeah (laughs) but uh you know i can understand how difficult it is for them to do it but when you think about the the goodwill it would engender i mean this is going to be at the gate this could be a really tough year you know, you already have twenty percent, or what was it, twenty dollar opening day tickets? Yeah, flash sale on opening day, not usually yeah, a good open, sign. Yeah, that's not a good sign when you when you're discounting opening day tickets. Uh, and it, I mean, it's got to be tough to to be a season ticket salesperson this year when you, your GM comes out in January and says we're probably not going to contend this year. Okay. Uh... Here's a here's actually a pretty good one uh, from Mike Miller, uh, Coach Miller. I wonder if this is. I don't know if he's. Eh. All these names uh, are names I recognize: Casey Masterman, and yeah. Stubbs, and they're the people that that are faithful uh, tweeter uh, tweet followers. Mike Miller. I wonder if this is. No, I don't know if this. No, this guy's in Nebraska. Uh, oh. I thought it was maybe Paul Miller's son. Uh, Mike Miller says. What do you think the Mariners will struggle with more this season? Scoring runs or pitching? Will we see close games or blowouts? Uh, I think they're going to struggle with both. But, <laughs> <laughs> but pro- I, I would say pitching more than scoring runs. Uh, although, as you know, the, the that question that we the, the one of the ten things with the four of their starters are first-time major leaguers handed the job. Uh, so if they struggle, you know, I could see this lineup. We're in a stretch right now where they've been shut out back-to-back spring training games. Uh, I could see that sort of thing happening in the regular season. I think they could manufacture some runs because they're going to be able to run a little bit. You know, JP runs okay. Shed runs pretty well. Malik's Fraley... Lewis runs better than you think. Um, you know, Evan White actually runs really well. So they could, you know, they may be able to manufacture, score some runs with their legs, you know, in that regard, maybe get score on a base hit that maybe, you know, other teams or Vogelbach's not scoring on. But, man, that's, I mean, of, of proven major league hitters in their everyday lineup, you have one. Kyle Seeger is the only proven major league hitter. I mean, Tom Murphy's had one season, one half season of success. Uh, Daniel Vogelbach had a half season of success. Um, Drew D. Gordon's not in the lineup every day. J.P. Crawford, I mean, what did he really prove last year? And Malik's, I mean, you don't even think you really know what you got with him. So. Yeah, no, so that's why I said both, because I, I see some real issues with the bullpen. 
that's going to cause some problems. And the rotation is two guys coming off injuries. Uh, a guy who's never had a full season starting in Sheffield and then the guy in Kikuchi who had a five plus ERA last year. So uh, there's, there's danger signs there as well. I think the starters are going to be better than we expected. I think they'll be decent. I mean, Marco will be Marco, and I think Kikuchi's going to be a little bit better. Sheffield, flip a coin. And and Graveman and and Taiwan, I think they'll be good for four to five innings, at least to start with, until they build up. But I I have no idea what to expect from that bullpen either. Like, you know, who – I mean, who do you look at and just say, oh, this guy can get three important – because you're going to have to sometimes get three. You just can't get one important out apparently – you know, unless it's the ninth and you're bringing a guy in for one, you know, that with two outs. I just don't know who they look to and say, this is our stopper in a, in a, a situation, in a leverage situation. Who do you go to and say, this is our best reliever. Come get it. Yeah, they, they don't they don't have that guy. Huh. Uh, so, uh, I mean, and. You still want to go with 96 losses there, buddy? <laughs> I'm, I'm reevaluating. Uh, you know, in the closer by committee, there's if you win a team like this, which we think is going to lose 90 plus games, when you do have a lead, you wanna you wanna preserve it. So you know you could minimize having a closer and having it by committee and playing, uh, you know, the percentages and all of that, the matchups, but you 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 want to close out those games when you have a chance and and. I don't see anyone who is, uh, you know, a sure thing to do that. Uh, I got this one from earlier from Pete Morrisell in, on email. He asked about how the injury affects Mitch Hanniger's, um arbitration and w- what that means for him going forward. Uh, as far as I know, and I'm pretty certain on this, so Mitch is making $3 million a year, just over $3 million in salary. He can't make less than that. Once he's established that thing, he has to make at least that and then go up from there based on regular arbitration rules. At least that's what I was told. So he's going to make $3 million next year. It does totally change how he's viewed. I mean, I guess if he only made $3 million next year uh, – or whatever he's more affordable i just don't know what to trade i mean like i look at him the other day dude he's so skinny he's i wouldn't say he's d gordon skinny but he has to have lost 25 or 30 pounds i can't imagine him being back by july 1st maybe july 1st at the earliest yeah i mean i think they'll be lucky if they get him for august and september uh when you consider all the strength he's going to have to get back and, and all that so, I mean, that one that rules out a trade almost certainly. So, I, mean, I think for him, it would be great just to have a couple of months in the major league. So, at least you have something to, I mean, he, at that point, he will have played. I mean, he missed so much last year as well. So, he's going to have two kind of lost years under behind him when he comes to camp next year. And so, uh, I think it would be good just to show that he's that he's back and get get a couple of months in yeah hanniger is a free agent uh after the 2022 season so 2023 he's a an unrestricted or he's a free agent so they mariners have two years of control after this year so this year next year and the year after that he'll be 31 in his third year he'll be 32 as a free agent i mean legitimately his window could have closed. I mean, like if if the Mariners offered him, I don't know if they did or not. I have I I think they threw it out there, like a small, 
maybe an Evan White, like $24 million extension or something like that. I mean, it, he could be kicking himself in the long run for that. Yeah, I mean, he's case in point when a lot of times people say play all players are selling themselves short. Why did they take that deal? If they're a star, they're going to leave millions on the table. But it works the other way, too. If you if you have unforeseen uh, injuries that derail your career like Haniger did, then if you had that security and you had taken that deal, it, it would benefit you and the team would be kicking itself. I mean, given his talent, I don't think this would ever happen. But, like, you know, say going into the 2022 season, he just hasn't recovered. He isn't the same player. They could legitimately just non-tender him, and then he doesn't get that guaranteed at least minimum of $3 million or whatever he made the year before in arbitration eligibility because once you're non-tendered, that goes out the door. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, he's guaranteed $3 million this year and basically guaranteed $3 million next year, at least $3 million next year, and then from there, you just don't know. Yeah. Three million is pretty pretty good money, though. Yeah. I mean, it's what you make in a, in a week. So. <laughs> All right, and my last one, oh, we'll do our last question. It is probably one of the more pressing ones, and I got this uh, via message as well from uh, from Leanne, who asks, where is it here? How do you guys think the coronavirus situation might impact opening day? There was a worker at CenturyLink who tested and worked in an XFL game. Um We've discussed this not on the podcast. I am, with each passing day, and the more I see out of Tacoma and the NWAC tournament getting canceled, Seattle U losing games, I don't think that opening day is going to be played in Seattle. And if it is, it's going to be played in front of a crowd of nobody. Yeah, that would be incredible. That'd I mean, be absolutely also, incredible. if you're the, the Rangers, why do you want to come up there? Yes, but Seattle has this reputation now. People around the country, there was that article portraying it as a ghost town, yeah. which it's not. That's yeah. not. It's not a ghost town. Yeah, but five, I think 405 the, doesn't say it's a ghost town. Yeah, <laughs> but I will say that the traffic is much less in general. Stores are, uh, restaurants, uh, the <laughs> You're going to laugh, but we went out to Red Robin when I got back. Of course. And it's usually you have to wait for a table at this uh, uh, Overlake Red Robin, and nobody was there at 6 o'clock. Um, so I, I think people are staying in. But I think, to more to your point, that uh, people around the country are looking at Seattle. It's a cesspool of coronavirus because they're in the, at the forefront of the news. Uh, so I could see, you know, like Chicago State not wanting to come play Seattle U. I could see teams like saying, "Do we really want to go to Seattle?" This isn't a decision the Mariners can make on their own. Major League Baseball, the players' union. I mean, I mean, the players' union on some level is going to be like, "Wait, we're going to send our guys into Seattle, and we're not certain if it, you know, what could happen if we send them in, you know." Um, and, you know, do I think – I think Seattle in general, the moves that are being made are erring on the side of extreme caution, which I don't blame them. I think that's probably the correct move. But I I don't know. I don't know, you know, I basically being down here in Arizona where it's not there, I'm just reading all of it, I, there isn't that, you know. There just isn't that kind of panic. You know, you can't buy – 
uh, hand sanitizer down here, but <laughs> you can still buy toilet paper um, and bottled water. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, like maybe that perception, how much is it the perception of what people see in Seattle or think and what is the reality? Yeah. And that's, that it doesn't seem like the perception right now is the reality of what you're seeing, at least not the the extreme level, is it? Uh, no, I think it's not as bad as as people think. But you can't downplay the fact that it's the leading center of this virus in the United States, and ten people have died here. I mean, most of them were elderly from one nursing home. But that's a sobering number, and the number of cases is sobering as well. So um, I think there are issues in Seattle, perception-wise and reality-wise, that don't exist uh, other places. I mean, I know he doesn't have any say in the matter, but when I was listening to, to Jay Inslee, some of the, I read some of the comments Jay Inslee made, the governor, and even some of the comments from Jenny Dirk, and I was like, wow, this... This is getting to a different level. I mean, you know, you're all these businesses are telling people to stay home and work from home, and they're telling people not to go into large group settings. Well, though, I opening day wasn't going to sell out. It was still going to be probably thirty thousand people, you know. And now, I mean, that's another thing. Like, I mean, if you're a fan, do you go? Yeah, I mean, they're already the the health organizations are saying if you're over 60 with some underlying health issues that you should stay away from. So that means crowds. we're not covering the game. Then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I keep, I told this to somebody else, but I read somewhere that, uh, you know, older people were recommended to stay indoors until they'd figure out what was going on. And I thought to myself, Oh, that's too bad for those, uh, those older people. Then I realized, Oh wait, they're talking about me. Yes. <laughs> they're talking about me. I am in the uh, I'm certainly in the age range of 60 and over. I don't uh, knock on wood have underlying health issues, but uh, um, you know I don't feel like I'm in any, any extra danger. But I guess that that's probably naive. I mean, I, I guess to me, I wonder what the point it would be of playing in Seattle if people aren't going to go and if people are afraid to go and if your athletes are afraid to go. I mean, like if you're if you're these players, do you send your families back up there to stay there for now? I mean, or do you tell them, hey, go back home or wherever it is? You know, I I, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I, I never considered otherwise that they would play, but I never considered otherwise that, you know, I, you know, that it was going to change my life that drastically. What would they do is the bigger question. Like if they just, because I just don't think, you just can't postpone it and just say, oh, we're going to make it up. That's you know, at least if they just did the first homestand, that's six games that they would have to make up, including three against the Twins, who are a non-division opponent. Like, the three against the 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 Rangers, you could make up with double headers and other stuff, and it would be difficult, but you could do it. The, the three against the Twins would be difficult. Now, here is one solution, and I know I've kind of heard grumblings that it has been discussed as uh, – an option. I don't know if like it's the first option or it's just an option mentioned. But they could play the games down here. Texas trains down here. They could stay down here. The Mariners could stay down here. Play those first three games. I think it's three, right? Or is it four? Three? Thursday, Friday, Saturday? No, four. And then um, three against the Twins. Have the Twins come down here. You don't necessarily play it at Chase Field because 
the Diamondbacks are home. But, I mean, not you're not going to get a ton of fans, so you could play it at Salt River Field and Talking Stick, or you could play it here in Peoria, I guess, and then you're not getting into the Seattle area, and that's still giving you, you know, it's three weeks till opening day now, and then another week and a half, eight or a week of home games, plus then an eight-day road trip. That takes you into about mid-April before you have to come back to Seattle and legitimately play a game. I mean, does that seem viable? I mean, it does seem viable. It's it's not desirable, that's for sure. Uh, you know, you, your home opener is a big deal. Yeah. I guess you could you could do a home opener whenever you have your home opener. I mean, but how much? It, I mean, it's not going to be a big deal if nobody goes because they're afraid either. Though. Yeah, no, that's true. It's there's it's kind of a no win situation at this point. Uh, there's no good there's no good answers. I mean, you you either play to a sparse crowd, you play to an empty stadium, or you play at a neutral field in Arizona. That you the scenario you laid out. None of those are, are good solutions. The best solution would be to have a packed crowd but on opening day, but large gatherings of people in close contact are what you would what you don't want these days. So it's really a it's really a dilemma. Yeah, and I don't you can't go it doesn't sound like Texas's park is ready to play, like would be ready to host games and I don't think that the I I don't know that the Mariners would want to go to Texas and play those games. And they'd ra- or would they rather play them here? Um, and then, you know, going to Minneapolis, I don't know if they could do that for the next three or whatever. Um, you know, you're playing in yeah. the first week of April. Um, yeah, I don't I, I don't know what the deal is, if they would go on the road to other big league stadiums or if, you know, and again, I think the Players Union and MLB and the Mariners and these other teams in conjunction would have to figure out what's the best option. I mean, and I don't know what, the mayor or the governor, you know, what influence they could have on the decision as well. I mean, if they declare it a state emergency and they just say, you're not playing here, then what do the Mariners do? Well, and the other thing is that right now Seattle is way ahead of everyone else, but this is a fast-moving disease. And in two weeks, they, you know, other places could could be uh, where Seattle is now. So it's, it may not just be a Seattle issue. It could be a nationwide issue, which would be, even worse for not just MLB, but NHL and NBA and XFL. And, you know, this is something that every sports organization is facing from the PGA to the LPGA, tennis, world soccer is really hard hit. Uh, So, I mean, this is something that everybody is confronting right now. Um, I know the Mariners have had, constant meetings with MLB with the city of Seattle um, and they're kind of monitoring it. I guess maybe they're thinking within two to three weeks when it does open, they have some more, uh, I don't know what the word would be. You just have more information about making a decision on what you should do. Like, yeah, they have came out. I mean, Varel did a story today in, in our paper about, so, you know, events being canceled and stuff and there was a statement from tim heavily and the mariners saying that right now their plan is to play opening day in seattle yeah um i think they need to go with that working plan but to also have contingencies uh and plan b's and c's and d's and i'm sure they are you know you you don't need to make the decision on march 5th but you gotta you gotta make it fairly soon 
I would like to point out the best-looking reporter on staff, not Varel, got that statement from the Mariners. Okay. Ah, that was but, you. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it was really tough. I asked for an email. I asked for a statement on <laughs> the situation. <laughs> it was real tough. Um, yeah, I, I, I think they want to play that game there, but I just don't know. Again, I don't know. The Mariners may want to do that, and by the end, when a week out from it, or you know, I think that would be when they'd have to make the last the final decision on whether they're going to do this is five days out or six days out. They have to know, look, we're either going to do this or we're not. Um, and that may not be their control. They may want to do it in other entities that have some saying it say, look, no, you're not doing that. And it will be very interesting to see what happens when that happens. I've never, I mean, like, can you think of anything like this? No, I mean, believe it or not, I was not around in 1918 when the, uh, the, they had the Spanish flu uh, crisis and they ended up canceling the Stanley Cup that the, Met, the Seattle Metropolitans never had a chance to defend their title, if I, if I remember correctly from what I read. So, I mean, that's, I think, how far back you have to go. Uh, I mean, there was, a, remember in the Olympics in Brazil uh, four dengue? years ago. Was it dengue? No, it was something, it was another virus that, K-I-K-A or something? And uh, H1N1? I I don't know, but there was, remember some golfers pulled out? And oh, some, yeah. Some, some athletes pulled out because they were afraid of this virus um, four, four years ago, but this is seems like a much bigger deal. Yeah, my friend Christy got dengue at that, dengue fever at that. It was She was not happy. I mean, the, speaking of the Olympics, I mean, not to go off track, but that that should definitely be in jeopardy given the number of nations coming in, the different, you know, the flying in and all the different countries. That, well, that one could be in some serious jeopardy. Yeah, although they came out, well, Dick Pound of the IOC said that it was in danger. <laughs> And then they they didn't like that, and they came out yesterday and said, "Oh no, we're we're going to hold these things." So right now they're they're talking about holding them. But uh, if I were an athlete, I'd be very worried. And it's just so sad that there's some athletes who have been pointing their whole lives for this. You know, your your window of being elite is in some sports is 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 uh, finite. And if you miss if your Olympic opportunity suddenly disappears as what happened with the olympic boycott in the 80s then you know you could never get another chance sometimes on march 5th where do you think as of march 5th where do you think what do you think happens for opening day hmm oh i'll say uh, uh i'll say they play it somewhere else okay. yeah, what do you say i think that's what they'll play it somewhere else i don't think they'll play to an empty stadium I don't think the other team's going to want to go into Seattle. That's why. So, unless something drastically changes in the next two weeks, and I just don't know that it can, something can drastically change in the next two weeks. Yeah, I suppose if this settles down and there's stops being new cases and you know that sort of thing, and but it doesn't seem like that's the way it's headed. There's there's a fair amount of panic, and and I understand why and. It's when you don't know about stuff and everything, and and the unknown causes panic. And you know, and that's it's not always the best decision time to make decisions in panic. But uh, I think you know, if baseball may just want to err on the side of caution, extreme caution, like a lot of these businesses are doing, and just say, look, let's wait another three weeks and then make another decision if you have to. 
but do you think all the other opening days are going to go on oh, the schedule? I, yeah, because I don't think, I mean, like, look, there there are cases of, of coronavirus in other um, other cities, but nothing quite like Seattle. And I think that's why th- that, that protocol might be different. It's just because it's just, again, the reality might not be as bad as it is as the perception that's being thrown out there, but... You know, if you're making that decision a little bit and you want to err on the side of extreme caution, then maybe you make it and then, you know, say, look, this is this is you're going to lose six home games. But in the end, you know, this might be better off. Yeah. And then just hope things settle down. You know, at some point you got to come home and play games. And, uh, you know, two weeks later, is is things going to be any better? I don't know. That's a good question. All right, we'll end it on that. That's a good question, something to ponder. We'll we'll probably have something more next week to discuss about this again. but uh, And then we'll do more questions. And then next week, uh, wait, no, am I at the tournament next week? We might have to take a little brief hiatus for a few days. I don't know when we'll record it because I'll be in Las Vegas. I'm not afraid of coronavirus. (laughs) So uh, we will do uh, predictions, Cy Young, all that good stuff. Yeah. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon. This has been the Extra Innings Podcast, presented by the Seattle Times, with your host, Ryan Divish. Thanks to the Midnight Salvage Company for providing the beds and bumper music for the podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. You can reach Ryan via email, rdivish at seattletimes.com. Follow Ryan on Twitter, at Ryan Divish, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Ryan Divish. Thanks for listening.